Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for September 22nd, 2021. Happy first day of fall and happy Hobbit Day. We hope that you enjoyed a great second breakfast and that you're joining us for this fine fellowship of news this week. I'd like to introduce my uh, fine Shire mates over here, Zach DeMeyer. Zach, how are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, happy to have my hairy feet out and uh, on the table. And of course, joining us always is the wizard of storage, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, how are you today? Storage is never late or something. I, I There's no meta, and there's no end to that metaphor. <laughs> You're right, there is. And you know what else there isn't an end to is the news that we cover each week here on The Rundown because we've got a great lineup of stories. Um, we have some big announcements and we have some cool things that you're going to want to check out. And starting off with one of those, speaking of storage, Stephen, um, is that most enterprise data still ends up on the most magical, mystical, arcane technology that there is, tape. And Fujifilm and IBM have made what we consider to be a very long expected announcement this week, LTO 9, the next generation tape format. It's finally here. It's here. It stores 18 terabytes natively or up to 45 terabytes if you're able to turn on the compression for it. And this is pretty much exactly what everybody expected for the last couple of years. We already know the roadmap for all of the next revisions, pretty much all the way through LTO 12. Now, Stephen, this is storage. This is tape backup. Are you excited for these announcements? Excited is probably not the right word, but I am optimistic and appreciative of these announcements. Um, so essentially, Fujifilm has been ready to go with their LTO9 tape for a while. Um, IBM fin finalized the, the drive specs and we're ready to go. So uh, those of you who aren't hip to the, the, the world of tape um, can understand maybe that uh, it's important to keep a backup of data. It's important to have another location for data. Um, but you may actually be a little more excited to think about it from this way. You know how everybody's always griping and whining about how Bitcoin uses up as much energy as New Zealand and how even like, like spinning disk drives and stuff like that, yeah, they use less power, but they, they are still you know polluting the planet and all that. Well, that's true. In fact, it's super true. We heard at our recent uh, storage field day event, we had uh, Fujifilm actually present on the green benefits of tape technology. And honestly, you should watch that video. It is um, really, really illuminating on this subject. Essentially, storing a bit of data on tape instead of on disk reduces uh, CO2 and energy by 87%. Um, in this world of greenness, we ought to be a little bit more green about where we're storing our data. It may surprise you or it may not surprise you that uh, a lot of the cloud service providers are a little hip to this as well. There's actually a lot more tape in the modern world than you'd think, even though they don't talk about it because basically uh, they know how you're gonna react when you hear tape. You're gonna be like, oh, spare me, old fashioned technology. Yeah, thanks, Tom, I appreciate it. But, but the truth is most of your data ends up on tape. Most of your data is on tape. And if it's on tape, it's on LTO. And for the longest time, it's been on LTO 6, 7, 8, which are two and a half, six, or 12 terabytes natively. Now we've got 18 terabyte cartridges, which are just, you know, I mean, it's an incremental improvement, but it's an improvement. 
Uh, the other cool thing that they're doing is they're trying to make all this stuff greener. So there's no more plastics. Uh, these things come in a cardboard, uh, you know, biodegradable box. Uh, the, the libraries even are much less uh, impactful on the environment than manufacturing disk drives and power supplies and all that stuff. And, you know, quite frankly, um, if more of us were more excited about tape, it would be better for the whole world. So am I excited about LTO9? Um, no, but I'm glad that we have it. And I'm really looking forward to Gen 10, which is going to be 36 terabytes and Gen 11 is 72 and Gen 12 is going to be 144 terabytes. And um, why should you care? It, it's better. It's better for everyone if we have more data on tape. So let's uh, shift gears here for a second. Uh, Zach uh, Marantis appears to be playing in the hybrid cloud market as they announced a new offering called Marantis Flow, which really ought to be a surfing simulator, but unfortunately it isn't. It's designed to help smaller companies solve the hybrid cloud problem by offering a service to manage cloud native data center pieces no matter where they live. Or it's a surfing simulator, one or the other, I'm not sure. Uh, Mirandus has said that this container engines, as well as their OpenStack environment, is capable of leveraging Mirandus Flow to migrate workflows between uh, public and private instances. It's a software-only solution, and hardware must be provided by the customer or rented from companies like Equinix, which I'm sure bothers them a great deal. The service runs $15,000 per month for 1,000 vCPU licenses and some VM migrations and 24-7 support. Is this going to be something uh, companies are going to want to buy, you think? Stephen, this is a, an interesting one because I think there are going to be certainly some companies that will want to purchase this with uh, people these days trying to reduce their overall capital expenses and taking on more operational-based ones. So it, it makes sense for companies that might have a little less expertise in the IT department or or perhaps, uh, you know, are just have hit a wall when it comes to things uh, like hybrid cloud installations and, and standing up Kubernetes. But, you know, there are tons of companies that can do those things just fine. And, and there are really some fine folks out there who that's their wheelhouse. And so this sort of uh, this sort of software seems to be almost like it's uh, kind of bumping in to step in and, and take take away their position. So I guess it really depends on on what the the you know, the individual company is expecting and 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 preparing for for their hybrid cloud, um, you know, if they if they do have a nice, uh, well staffed and well budgeted IT department, uh, then I'm sure that this probably won't be a necessary tool. But like many IT departments, uh, many companies don't have uh, the staffing or the budget to be able to support uh, some of these things, and so it it might make the the flow product a little bit more enticing, shall we say? So. It'll be interesting to see going into the future as as you know IT budgets continue to fluctuate and and for many cases uh, decrease if if this uh, level of investment is worth it compared to say the you know the cost of uh, overhead for keeping a technician on staff who knows how to deploy Kubernetes containers. So uh, at the end of the day, you know it will be helpful for some and use less for others. But aren't all technologies like that at the end of the day? So. Uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting. I would like to switch gears, however, to uh, something that we've been talking about somewhat ad nauseum here on this show. And I'm going to think back to the bygone days of, well, July and the uh, Kaseya ransomware outbreak attack that uh, cl uh, claimed 1,500 companies and sparked a huge outcry about leveraging fleet management tools to distribute malware. 
The attack has been attributed to the R evil crew and made them go to ground because of the sheer scale of their attacks. A new report from the Washington Post says that the FBI got their hands on a decryption key for the malware used by R evil within days of the attack, but decided to hold on to it without mentioning it to the affected companies. The plan was to launch an op operation to disrupt the crew before distributing the key, but their disappearance caused them to end up sharing a the tool on July 21st. Tom, why would the FBI not want to help companies that are, were under attack? All right, folks. So let me put my Perry Mason hat on here for just a moment and my tie and basically be in black and white. Um, so the FBI got a hold of the, the, the Revil decryption key for this, which by the way, there is a tool out there now. So just go download it if you got hit by this like two months ago. The first question that you might ask yourself is, how on earth was the FBI able to get a hold of the decryption key for this malware within days of the attack? And if you answer that question the way that most people would answer that question, you'll know why they didn't say anything about it. Let me give you a counterpoint example involving the FBI from the opposite direction to let you know why this was such a big deal. So do you remember that a few years ago there was an, a terror incident where there was some loss of life and the FBI was able to recover the iPhone of one of the people who was involved in it? And they were badgering Apple to decrypt the password and all the data on the iPhone because they needed to get access to see what was going on. And then suddenly the FBI one day said, no, we don't need you anymore. Apple immediately filed a lawsuit against the FBI wondering exactly how on earth did you figure out how to get into this iPhone without us knowing about it because we told you we couldn't do it. Yeah, in this case, the FBI got a hold of the decryption key because they were in Revil servers the entire time. They weren't just planning an operation to pick off a couple of these alleged people who were under the attack. They were trying to round up as many of them as possible before they brought them all in. And in order to do that, just like any good poker player, you don't tip your hand until the final card is played. Now, the problem is, is that Revil's not your average gang of thugs. And just like the ones who are responsible for the Colonial Pipeline attack and pretty much every other thing that happened this year, they went to ground immediately because you know what happens when you show up on CNN? You're blown. Get out of town, shut down, and disappear. And that's what they did. And as soon as they were basically gone off the radar about a week later, that's when the FBI was like, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, here's how you decrypt all of your stuff. But here's the other thing. Even if they got the key, the key doesn't always work. So that's why the, the FBI and Treasury and Justice are saying don't pay these people because, I mean, realistically speaking, if you pay and the key doesn't work, you're going to be really, really mad. But they're already shifting tactics about, you know, when they give the keys and things like that. So it's important to understand that just because the FBI has their hands on something doesn't mean they're going to share it if they can use that thing to leverage a bigger bust, a bigger gain for our law enforcement agencies. And we saw that even before with another ransomware crew that got rolled up within days. And they were in those servers for weeks, getting as much information as they could. And when it's go time, they went and they got everybody and they shut it completely down. Revil just went to ground and they're going to pop up again in different crews doing different things. So I can't fault the FBI for what they did. And the fact that we're only finding out about it two and a half months later tells me that it wasn't as big of a deal as we originally thought. But still, there needs to be a little bit better coordination between law enforcement agencies and the affected companies so that they understand when the FBI tells you not to pay, sometimes there's a good reason for that. And maybe we need to do a better job of communicating that. All right, Stephen, we're going to move on from the security story, but we're going to talk a little bit about everybody's favorite um, cloud company, 
well, no, not that one. Yeah, Google, um, because they've announced that they're adding some extensions to their cloud storage offering to help you protect your data, which is a huge thing right now. Uh, they already have storage buckets that are capable of um, operating across regions, you know, for fault tolerance and availability. But today they've added some additional features, including the ability to custom select the regions that you want those buckets to cross, as well as everybody's three favorite letters, RPO, and three more favorite letters, SLA. They have a 15-minute RPO that is backed by an SLA, which should make a whole lot of people who are in the executive ranks really happy that they know exactly how fast their data can come back. In addition, uh, GKE is going to get a new backup service for containers to help data ensure that it doesn't go disappear into whatever ephemeral hell that containers go to when they die. And File Store Enterprise, which is synchronous replication for extremely large applications that cross multiple zones in large regions. And this is designed to keep things like SAP from just going completely dark in certain areas, but not all over the place. Um, Stephen, Google has put out a blog post, which we'll link to in the show notes, talking about why these things are important and uh, giving some good quotes from some analysts about how IT departments are growing really, really fast, but this whole idea of data loss is still really important to them. What's your take on these announcements from Google Cloud today? Yeah, I was lucky enough to get a pre-briefing and a chance to ask some questions and uh, learn a little bit more about this from Google. And, um, you know, frankly, it's a pretty solid offering. Uh, I've got to say, uh, many of us in the IT industry, uh, you know, when we think of cloud, we think of AWS or we think of Azure. But, uh, you know, many of us don't take Google as seriously as maybe we should. The truth is that Google has brought in a bunch of enterprise talent over the last few years, and they're really starting to execute on this. The uh, dual region bucket uh, extension is actually really cool. Um, the fact that you can basically say, look, I want my, my data in these two regions. Um, the data can't be any more, as you mentioned, than, than 15 minutes apart. And um, you, know, you can configure that yourself and, and decide where you want your data to live. This is pretty powerful and it's pretty much in line with what enterprises are expecting in this era of data sovereignty. For me, the thing that I was really excited about was the uh, file store for enterprise because, you know, of course I am. That's the kind of thing that makes me excited. Um, a cloud native NFS server. Um, this thing is actually pretty neat. Again, it uh, provides basically NFS storage uh, fully in the cloud with synchronous replication across uh, within a region. Um, and you can use this in basically almost any enterprise application, uh, like tape. NFS is one of those things that I think a lot of people go, oh, I don't want to hear about this. But truly, it is the file transport mechanism that's used by the majority of enterprise applications and probably the majority of Unix applications in cloud solutions if they're not storing in native cloud storage. And Google really needed a great solution for this. And, uh, you know, they've got a native one. When they were talking about this, it really got me thinking about some of the acquisitions they've made. And as I said, some of the hires they've made, because to me, I think this is really the thing that these companies, these cloud companies need to do. They need to go out there and they need to find the best people in enterprise technology, whether it's storage or networking or servers or applications, bring those people in and ask them what enterprises need. Instead of just making the whole thing about what uh, the cloud can do, make it about what enterprises actually want and need. That's the magic that Microsoft brought to Azure. And the reason I think that Azure has been so successful despite some of their problems. And uh, finally, as for the uh, whole idea of backing up containers, um, obviously that's cool, but I think I should let you know that where containers go after they die, 
everybody knows that after watching Loki on Disney Plus. They go to that place. So don't power down your container. Hey, Zachy, uh, you think that with the Department of Defense canceling the Jedi contract, we'd be all done talking about it, right? I mean, we're done with Jedi. Uh, we're on to whatever the next trilogy is called. Um, you'd think that, but enter the Dark Lord of the Sith, uh, Larry Ellison. <laughs> Larry uh, asked the U.S. Supreme, well, actually Oracle, asked the U.S. Supreme Court this week not to dismiss their Jedi lawsuit. Why, you ask? Because of, e no, no, it's not because of evil, because uh, that they believe that no matter what happens now, the JWCC contract that the DOD is only going to be choosing between Amazon and Microsoft is uh, shutting out the eighth largest cloud provider in the world. No word yet from many of the parties about this legal maneuvering, but rest assured that if anyone knows how to keep a lawsuit going, it's Oracle. Uh, Zach, what are they doing? I mean, you kind of teed it up yourself, Stephen. They are the eighth largest cloud provider in the world. And as such, they are, are a part of the group that's scrambling to get up to the top of this King of the Hill game that Amazon has been at the top of for a long time. And with Microsoft right behind them and, you know, these new uh, developments coming out of the Google Cloud, it's, uh, it's certainly a hard scrabble fight for Oracle to get up to the top of the pile. And, you know, having the backing of the Department of Defense, it, it looks good. Uh, you know, not everyone agrees with me probably, but when it comes to, uh, you know, showing off that your cloud is, is the top when the U S government says that you're pretty good, you're not, you're not half bad. Um, and it's a, it's kind of a thing where, you know, at this point, Amazon and Microsoft can sort of just rest on their laurels and say, yeah, you know, we're the best and we're backed by, you know, the government as well. So we're just the ultra best. Uh, and so from, from Oracle's perspective, this is certainly a, uh, a, a, a big foothold that they could use to, to step up and, and advance through the ranks and, and, you know, start clearing away folks like IBM or, or, uh, you know, Google and, and, and start going after the big dogs in this, uh, cloud fight. So at it's, it's, to me, it seems really just like they're, uh, they're hoping and, and praying that they can really just show off that they, they do have what they, uh, you know, what they consider to be a top tier cloud platform and, uh, having the, the ensign of the, you know, United States Department of Defense is a, a big uh, step forward into, into making that dream into a reality. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, they'll keep the lawsuit going and, and maybe just maybe the the uh, Supreme Court will say, you know what, I think that you guys are right. We should make this a little bit more of a, uh, a level playing field instead of just leaving it up to the big dogs. But uh, hard to say. Um, but, you know, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit here and move on to a new story, because uh, it looks like WD is looking to grow again. And one of their NAND partners, they're on deck. Kyosha, uh, who we talked about last week. And WD have a joint partnership in Japan, and Kyosha recently withdrew their proposed IPO due to potential trade complications between the U.S. and China, uh, souring the sales of their chips. But instead, WD is proposing to purchase those shares for around $20 billion. And in response, Japanese politicians have said that they would approve the merge, uh, provided that the company doesn't move their facilities entirely to the U.S. Uh, Stephen, what do you think about this move? Is it going through? And what does it mean for WD? Well, this is certainly a good sign for the move and that it may actually happen. So if you remember, we talked about this a little while ago uh, on the show. Um, 
you know, Kyosha is one of the world's biggest manufacturers of uh, semiconductor memory, flash chips and RAM and things like that. Um, WD, uh, well, you probably know them as the disk drive company, but the truth is WD has never been a disk drive company. Uh, Western Digital was actually uh, kind of an Intel competitor way back when. They've got a very long history and they've spent a lot of time, yeah, focusing on storage, but also focusing on uh, semiconductors and chips. In fact, uh, they manufactured the CPUs in a lot of the cool devices of the 80s. So WD is not a stranger to the world of chip making. And in fact, much of their revenue today comes from flash products, not as not from spinning disk. Um, you know, WD bought uh, SanDisk famously a few, few years back, and that gave them access to a lot of this stuff, including uh, entry into this world of next generation flash. So um, Kyosha was a joint venture. Um, I think that the uh, uh, vulture capitals at uh, Bain, oh, venture capitalists at Bain are interested in getting out and um, looking for somebody with a big pile of money to give them. And um, WD is like, yeah, that's us. Uh, this move, I think, is going to go through. I think essentially what we've got here is the Japanese government um, quietly and subtly telling them exactly what it needs to approve this merger. And if this merger happens, it will be big news on Wall Street and everybody will celebrate and make lots of money and burn $100 bills and stuff like, you know, the stuff they do on Wall Street. Um, the only weird thing about this approval is that Jap Japan is making it very clear that the company would have to basically split between the United States and Japan. Uh, they, this gives uh, WD some interesting options because all of the semiconductor stuff is done in Japan right now. So that theoretically means that they could move some of that to the United States. But on the flip side, all of WD's uh, management and you know, engineering and so on is done in the United States right now. And a lot of that would probably have to go to Japan, which wouldn't be so bad because frankly, that move might make this whole merger more attractive to China. Because I think if you have uh, an American company controlling uh, you know, one of the biggest flash producers out there, well, that's a problem for China. But if it's a Japanese American company that's evenly balanced, uh, maybe it's not so much of a problem. So I'd say all in all, this thing sounds great. The only weirdness is that I'm hearing a rumor that WD may actually spin off their hard disk making as part of this merger which would really burst the bubble of it, them being a disk drive based company. But of course, that's just a rumor. But kind of this whole thing is just a rumor. So I guess we'll find out what it means long term. But I'd say this is a very solid green light for WD to pursue this merger. Now it's time to look a little deeper into some of the news stories and get a little discussion going. Uh, Tom and Zach, uh, after spending most of 2021 fighting against ransomware crews, the U.S. Treasury is finally taking a page out of Hollywood and following the money. This week, they announced sanctions against cryptocurrency exchanges, S-U-E-X-O-T-C. Can we just call it SUCKS? I, I, is that okay? Um, for their part in handling payments for crews holding data hostage. SUEX looks particularly sketchy as it's registered in the Czech Republic but operated out of Russian offices. Per the report, some 40% of the transaction history of SUEX was illegal in nature, and at least eight different ransomware variants show up in the transaction history. The sanctions freeze their assets in the United States and prevent US-based companies from doing any sort of business with them under threat of fines and other nasty things. Will this uh, attack on sucks be enough uh, to disrupt the growing ransomware economy? 
So I think the important thing to think about with this story is that this is not the U.S. government stepping in to offer professional negotiators to kind of talk down these Bitcoin ransoms, because we've seen that over the last few weeks. And we've also seen the response from these crews of if you bring in a negotiator, we're going to release your data. This is effectively cutting off the head. And they've done this before. And they did this with the Lazarus Group, which is purported to be based out of North Korea. And basically, when you get put on the Treasury sanctions list, you can't pay. Not, not we don't encourage you to pay. You physically are unable to transfer any kind of asset to this group at all. And if you do, you get fined and you could go to jail. And like there have been situations, I believe the Garmin uh, story that we covered last year on the on the rundown was a good example of that Garmin had to go to Treasury and get a very special dispensation to unlock this stuff. And it was like, if we don't do this, GPS kind of goes to pot. So Treasury isn't playing right now. And they didn't just throw a dart at the wall. They came with receipts. 40% of their transaction history is illegal or illicit in nature. Eight different ransomware variants processed payments through this, this uh, exchange. It's a sketchy office building in the Czech Republic, but everything runs out of Russia. Man, I'm telling you, the more you dig into this, the more it looks like this is kind of maybe not state-sponsored, not state-sanctioned, but state-look-the-other-way, and let's just hope we sow some chaos in the Western world kind of stuff. And I don't necessarily know that this is going to fix the majority of the problem, because what it's going to do is going to shift a larger burden to companies that are globally active. So, for example, I'm not going to hit a company that's based entirely in the US like a pipeline company or a meatpacking facility now because they won't be able to pay. But if I hit a company like Siemens or Apple who have a subsidiary overseas who can make cash appear over there to pay the ransom, that's more likely for me to work. But what it does mean is if Treasury's sniffing around, it means that Cyber Command's probably not far behind. So yeah, if you were using what a suex sucks whatever we're going to call it it might be a good time for you to uh to board up the house and go live on a ranch in the middle of moscow somewhere because um somebody's coming for you and uh i don't think you're going to get paid again so so cash out uh, invest in monero or canned food and shotguns because it's you, you're not you're not going to be in business for much longer zach i mean kind of what are you thinking about this yeah, I I agree with you, Tom. This this whole thing just stinks of uh, of very uh, potentially corrupt, illicit behaviors coming out of uh, you know certain places in the world. And honestly, I'm just glad to see that the U.S. government is actually doing something that is actionable and preventative to really address these things. Because there's been so many times in the past where you know these attacks have come and gone and it just seems like everyone just throws their hands up in the air and says, well, we did all we can, you know, we've done nothing. We've tried everything. Uh, so this is, it's really, you know, heartening as opposed to disheartening, uh, you know, to see that these, uh, these things are being addressed and are being taken care of. And, and honestly, you know, like you said, with, uh, cyber control right behind, it's good to see that, uh, you know, the U S government is in fact, making moves in the cybersecurity realm to start taking these things seriously because they're a very serious threat. Will it disrupt the growing ransomware economy? Uh, maybe not, but it will certainly disrupt 
parts of it, which is certainly a good step forward. So, uh, you know, I, I think that this is this is certainly a good thing uh, with in with all things considered. So uh, let's let's move on to, to one last story here. And uh, it's it's kind of a big one. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you uh, both have to say about it, because the news coming out of Cisco this morning is shuffling some of their security executives. Security unit chief G. Rittenhouse is reportedly to leave the company, and Shalia Shankar is taking over that portfolio in addition to her existing cloud and network security team duties. Rittenhouse came to Cisco in 2014 and is behind the drive to create SecureX, the model that Cisco has put forward as the way to do security in a modern age, and they presented on a number of times at Tech Field Day events on the topic. Uh, the email detailing the change in leadership said that Rittenhouse would be helping the transition over the next few months, but was mum on the rest of the details. Tom, Stephen, is this a big move for Cisco? What do you see happening when Shankar takes the reins? Yeah, Zach, this is news because anytime any executive kind of shuffles around, um, it it kind of creates waves throughout the industry, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks with some of the, the transitions in other companies. Um, but I think the bigger story for me here isn't necessarily that a, an exec is leaving because if you if you look at the date, G. Rittenhouse came on board in 2014, which means he was recruited by John Chambers. And a lot of the uh, the Chambers clan, the faithful, are starting to kind of depart under Chuck, not because Chuck's not a good CEO, but, well, Chuck's kind of cleaning house a little bit as far as, you know, this is the way that I want things to look. And when you look at the transition of Cisco away from being a box pusher to a software company and a subscription company, it's it's kind of apparent that maybe the handwriting was on the wall but more importantly the big thing that i've seen under chuck that i didn't see under john was this consolidation of business units and and let's be fair cisco has been notorious in the industry for basically being a collection of fiefdoms that all kind of operated under their own little structure and um maybe not encouraged as much as Eddie Lampert at Sears, but kind of maybe just looking the other way when they're all competing with each other for resources and trying to get air. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense that enterprise switching was different than data center switching was different than service provider switching. Why not make all of those three things the same company? Well, that's what Chuck's doing. So for there to be a separate security unit, separate from the cloud security and networking security unit, that never made sense to me. And we've already seen that consolidation in the networking side of the house um, under uh, a couple of different companies and people. Actually, I believe Todd Nightingale now runs that whole organization. So for Shankar to take over basically all of the security portfolio, one is a good move on Cisco's part because there are no security female leads out there. So bravo to you guys for stepping up and, and having her take over. But more importantly, it signals a big change that security is not disparate anymore. It's everything. It's everywhere. And having someone who's focused not just on cloud, but on edge, um, on the network, on all parts of security means that the portfolio is going to be much more unified. And we've talked about SecureX in the past, and we've had some great presentations from Ben Greenbaum and some others about the, the vision that they have. And it feels complete. But what it needs is it needs integration up and down the stack and across all the disciplines. And I think that that's what you're going to get with uh, with Shankar in charge is we're going to put SecureX everywhere now. And I think that that's a good thing for customers because now it means that that unity of purpose will give them that ability to protect 
everything. It's no longer going to be, yeah, it works on all these things over here, but if you really want it to work on the cloud or something, you got to go talk to these people and make that work. And I love that those barriers are starting to disappear because as that happens, the software becomes much more useful to end users who don't know about all these political divisions inside of a company. I mean, Stephen, you know, you've had a lot of experience in the, over the years with like executives moving around and things like that. W what do you think about this? Yeah, I'd like to bring in another aspect here. Um, you know, really, I think the key insight of what you talked about was that we finally have uh, Chuck Robbins uh, asserting himself and his vision for Cisco here. And um, another event actually recently happened, which was uh, Cisco's first investor day. They haven't actually held one since 2017. And in that investor day, one of the things that Chuck Robbins announced was that he's going to be refocusing how Cisco reports revenue from its various segments, which essentially reorganizes the entire business. And this is a huge, huge business. Let me tell you, Cisco is one of those companies that you don't even understand how big it is if you're if you're only exposed to like sort of one one angle. It's like, you know, the, the metaphor of the men, uh, blind men and the elephant, right? I mean, you know, you might think, oh, Cisco, it's about US, UCS servers or, oh, Cisco, it's about, you know, I don't know, Wi-Fi access points or it's about, you know, routing and switching. It's not a. It's, it's about all those things, and and one of the things that Robbins did was reorganize not along um, market segments that maybe um, you or I might recognize, but around essentially market pillars. So, for example, secure and agile networks is where you know campus and data center switching fits. Um, hybrid work is their collaboration and contact center stuff. Um, you know, they have an end-to-end -end security, which is what I think uh, was uh, relevant to this story, where I think that, that, that maybe maybe Rittenhouse wasn't on board with that, or maybe uh, there just weren't enough chairs around the table at the end-to-end -end security uh, pillar uh, for Rittenhouse to keep having one. I don't know that it was necessarily a negative thing. Maybe it's just, you know, this is something different that they wanted to do. Um, you know, they also have segments called Internet of the Future, uh, which is like optical networking and uh, 5G and silicon photonics and stuff like that, um, optimized application experiences and capabilities at the edge. One of the things that was missing, uh, really, really missing from this was UCS. Uh, there's been a lot of rumors going around right now. Um, the fact that UCS was literally not mentioned at all during this investor conference has led a lot of people to think that maybe there's a bigger shoe falling here pretty soon. Maybe some of these uh, executives that are departing and coming in, maybe some of the reorganization is going to see us with a multi-billion dollar acquisition of Cisco's UCS business by one of the big server companies. I think that might be a story on a future rundown or not. You know, maybe, uh, maybe it was an oversight on Chuck Robbins' part. Maybe he just forgot that the company makes servers. I don't know, but uh, it doesn't seem all that likely to me. Yeah, I would say that you're right. Chuck Robbins isn't the kind of person to just forget things. But again, it's, it's a rumor. And if the rumor does pan out to be true, you know where you're gonna find the information first here on the Gestalt IT Rundown, because we're here every Wednesday at 12.30 Eastern time with all of the news that you don't wanna miss. But the rundown isn't all that we do. We have a lot of things going on throughout the week, throughout the months, throughout the year that you're gonna to wanna to check out. Stephen, what are some of the things that you're working on that people definitely wanna take advantage of? Well, we're currently in the process of planning our next field day event. Cloud Field Day is coming in November. 
And uh, it's going to be the first uh, hybrid field day event. So we're going to have some in-person presenters and in-person delegates in California once again, along with, of course, virtual delegates joining us from around the world because of the pandemic. But, you know, those of us that are uh, able to join will be uh, joining in person, which is a really exciting thing. That sounds great, Stephen. Uh, Zach, what are some of the things that you're working on over at gestaltit.com? Yeah, well, uh, as you recall from the top of the uh, episode, I did just uh, cover the LTO9 release by Fujifilm. So uh, look forward to that coming out on gestaltit.com. But also, you know, I've been uh, following along with the field day events. And I've got to say, having uh, people back in the room just adds, there's a certain energy to it. It's been really fun to watch. So certainly stay tuned uh, as, as those continue to, to develop into their, their hybrid model as they, as, as they are now. What about you, Tom? What have you been up to recently? Well, as you noticed my from my absence last week, we just finished up Networking Field Day. There were a lot of great announcements and a lot of great coverage from that. And you can totally check out those videos. If you head over to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash techfieldday, you can watch all of the presentations from the event. I'm also winding up for some more great technology coming very soon. In fact, next month, we're going to have Security Field Day. And then, as I mentioned before, we're going to have a special Networking Field Day event in December focused on service providers. So if you've ever wondered how all the bits get from one side of the internet to the other, this is the event for you. We've got some great companies lined up and some amazing delegates that are focused on that. So if you want to learn more about that, head over to techfieldday.com and you can check out all of the things that we've got coming up. But don't forget that if you would like to check out this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown and many more, you can head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video. You can also subscribe to the Rundown as a podcast if you prefer to get your snarky news in audio format. We publish each episode every week, so you can check that out. And don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode on gestaltit.com, links to the stories that we mentioned and some of the other fun things. Um, for now, though, for Zach DeMeyer and Stephen Foskett, I'm going to go ahead and take us out today. Uh, we have a small ring that we have to get to a volcano somewhere in the middle of Mordor, and uh, hopefully the eagles are here to fly us. But if not, it's going to be a little bit of walking. So uh, thank you very much for tuning in. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to seeing you all here again next week.